Welcome to The Art Career, a space breaking barriers by letting you sit in on candid, straightforward conversations with leading art professionals in visual arts, writing, music, theater, and film. I'm your host, Emily McElreath, and I invite you to join me for inspirational conversations with icons of our generation. We dive deep into topics like self-development, career trajectories, mental health, social justice, and the artists that have changed our lives. With each episode, our mission is to empower you, expanding your journey through the arts. Join us for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The Art Career is thrilled to announce its partnership with Glimpse. Glimpse Guides are a collection of luxury guidebooks with an outstanding social mission we are proud to support. Featuring the best of hotels, restaurants, activities, and itineraries for each featured city, Glimpse Guides also include recommendations and travel tips by a curated selection of tastemakers. The most exciting part of Glimpse Guides is 100% of their profits go to Give a Glimpse, which provides funding for educational travel scholarships for underserved students. What is better than that? Glimpse believe that travel is the most important form of education, and it is their mission to send as many deserving students abroad as possible. Glimpse also offers luxury trip design services with VIP perks like early check-in, room upgrades, restaurant and spa credits, welcome gifts, and more. Glimpse has quickly become our one and only travel planner. Go check them out at glimpseguides.com and tell founder Jordan Rhodes that the Art Career Podcast sent you. Cheryl Strayed is the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Wild, From Lost to Found on the Pacific Crest Trail, which has sold more than four million copies worldwide and was made into an Oscar-nominated major motion picture. Her best-selling book, Tiny Beautiful Things, is currently being adapted for a Hulu television show that will be released in early 2023. In 2016, Tiny Beautiful Things was adapted as a play that has been staged in theaters around the world, which I saw several years ago, and it was wonderful. Cheryl is also the author of the critically acclaimed debut novel, Torch, and the best-selling collection, Brave Enough, which if you don't have, you have to buy a copy for everyone in your life for the holidays which brings together more than 100 of her inspiring quotes. Her award-winning essays and short stories have been published in the Best American Essays, The New York Times, The Washington Post Magazine, Vogue, Salon, and elsewhere. She has hosted two hit podcasts, Sugar Calling and Dear Sugars. Cheryl lives in Portland, Oregon. I've never seen anyone able to stand in their vulnerability with such power, Cheryl. You have been one of my major role models in life, relatable, vulnerable, wounded, healed, and massively talented. 
a work in progress always, as I'm sure you will agree. I brought you on this podcast because I think we too often focus on the wrong things in the art and creative industries at large. And I thought it would be powerful to share you with our listeners. So thank you so much for being with us, Cheryl. Emily, thank you for those kind words. It's wonderful to be here. I love your podcast. And so I'm honored to be one of your guests. Well, I'm pinching myself. We're sitting in Philadelphia. Cheryl is in Philadelphia for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's tomorrow. That's right. It worked out perfectly. When I reached out to Cheryl, I was uh, originally going to fly out to Portland Mm -hmm. and then found out that you were going to be here. And I'm New York-based. This is a little easier. Though I'm sad you didn't get to come to the Pacific Northwest. I mean, we could have had my three cats and two dogs all over us during the entire recording of this podcast. I'll have to bug you the next time I'm out there and come visit you. I did a solo road trip completely influenced by you, but I was never going to actually... go camping. So I rented a car. (laughs) I flew into Portland, which I had never been to Portland, took five days, stopped in a million different places and drove down to LA. And that was my... Wow, that is beautiful. Well, that's essentially what I walked. But I drove, Uh, which is a lot different, but it was a big deal for me, Cheryl. (laughs) Well, good job. Emily's wild adventure. Thank you so much. (laughs) And actually, I've only camped once in my life, and that was in Pennsylvania with a bunch of lesbians in college. So it like... I don't even remember it. We were so (laughs) drunk during this excursion. But recently started dating a wonderful man. And every year they go camping out in Moab, like a a bunch of them. So I was invited to do this. And of course, I carry you with me always. I really do. I'm like, yeah, I can go camping in Moab. And so anyway, fast forward, I I did it. There were a few hiccups. It was like 20 degrees at night. Right. It It was intense. It's like hot in the day and cold at night in that that high desert country you're in out there near Moab. I went out being like, okay, Cheryl did this alone for 90, how many days? Well, I was out there for 94 days and I was walking, you know, I was carrying a backpack. It was none of this car camping business, Emily. I car camped, (laughs) had about five emotional breakdowns over the course of four nights. (laughs) See, when you car camp, you have like a cooler, you have, you know, so many amenities that you just simply do not have. And that's what most people are doing when they're camping now. Anyway, I'm proud of you. You did it? Thank you. I did it and I will do it again. I bitched a lot, but it was a good experience. Um, Okay, I digress. So the first topic I have is your famous write like a motherfucker. (laughs) Paint like a motherfucker, act like a motherfucker, fill in the blanks. Everything. People have had me sign their books, engineer like a motherfucker, mother like a motherfucker. Mm -hmm. Yes, I love that that has become an anthem for so many people in different whatever their work they do, that they do it like a motherfucker. And I think it's become this like widely known quote of yours. But if we pull back a little bit, the difference between the creatives I know that have made it and the creatives I know that have, and sometimes chosen not to make it, whatever that means to you, there's really, I mean, you kind of have to be out of your mind and really dive into something like 
a motherfucker. So we say it and it's funny, but it's actually very, very true. Absolutely. Like and I, all I in. you know, I call it having motherfuckitude. And I do think that you have to have it. Yeah. To make it as an artist of, of any sort, whether it be a writer or a painter or a filmmaker. And what motherfuckitude to me is that relentless discipline that relentless belief in oneself against all of the demons that are inside of us. I think sometimes when I say you have to fiercely believe in yourself, people think that that means that I'm saying don't have doubts, don't have fears, don't have anxieties. And and of course, I'm not saying that. But really deciding I am going to do this work and I'm not going to let anything stop me. I'm not going to let my own inner demons stop me. I'm not going to let rejection from others stop me. I'm not going to let those opinions that hurt stop me. I'm going to do it like a motherfucker, you know, keeping that yeah. deep faith, having that deep sense of nerve and courage that it takes to do that work. And I oftentimes feel because I've, you know, battled my own demons, as we all do. But there are oftentimes, I don't even know if I would call it having a deep faith or believing in myself. I guess ultimately that's what it is. But oftentimes it feels like I have to tap into a level of being a little bit delusional, right? Like, oh, you can do this. When I don't really believe I can do that, but it's that famous saying, fake it till you make it, you know? Sure. I oftentimes feel like I'm completely, you know, in order to get to the next, because when you've been rejected or when you're dealing with your demons at a 10 and not a two, mm -hmm. it's so hard to it's be able to really sit hard. there and be like, that's that's the thing about, depression and gratitude I always have such a fucking hard time with with these the self-help mm -hmm. industry it's like concentrate on gratitude mm -hmm. every day and that I'm like when you're really depressed you can't concentrate mm -hmm. on anything let alone what you're grateful for because in that moment you really aren't feeling that deep sincere level of gratitude right. yeah. or you wouldn't be depressed right mm -hmm. when we are feeling a large amount of gratitude. Those are the happiest moments of our lives. I think we can agree on that. Yeah, you it's know? very shiny, very high Yeah, emotion. and so back to a career trajectory or just life, it is in those moments of that deep self-doubt really having to be like, okay, I'm going to completely ignore what my mind is telling me right now. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the difference between, I guess that's resilience, it is. And right. I think I'm always interested when things that seem like opposite things actually at some core level are the same thing. And you right. use that word delusion. Yeah. So um, to say, you know, and you're right, like uh, if you look at the statistics, for example, if you're mm -hmm. just looking at a, a writer, what are the chances, first of all, that when you start to write a book that you finish it, the percentages are really low. And then what are the chances if you do finish that book that it gets published? the percentages are even lower. lower. What are the chances once it gets published that you're going to be able to like sell enough copies that you, uh, you know, are able to support yourself? Those are almost minuscule, right? Okay. So in a sort of reasonable analysis, mm -hmm. you could say it's almost impossible to quote unquote, make it as a writer. And yet you do, you know, that's where delusion comes in. Yeah. In some ways you have to say, well, you know, I'm going to do this anyway. I'm going to do this even though the odds are against me. But what I've learned in my own life 
and certainly in my own career, that that feeling isn't at core delusion. It's this thing that seems opposite. It's acceptance. Because delusion is in some ways a, a sort of pushing away of the facts, right? And acceptance is doing the reverse and saying, I am going to pull you to me. I'm going to hold you in my arms and you are going to be part of this thing that I'm doing. So part of the thing I'm doing in setting out to write a book is that I am going to feel a lot like I can't finish this book, or if I do finish this book, it'll never be published, or if it does get published, nobody will love it. And so for me to say, actually, this is this is what I'm going to hold to me mm-hmm. instead of push away from me, this helps, it frees me to do the work. Because, you know, once you actually embrace something, it's one of the most liberating things we can do for ourselves is to accept what's true is true. And so you say, oh, okay, so these fears, they're not my ruler anymore. They're not the boss of me. They aren't the things that are going to decide for me if I do this work or not. They'll stand here with me, but they're not going to make the decisions. Yeah. So does that make sense? Like that way that, you know, they are at core the same thing. You know, one is about pushing away. One is about embracing. And I think that the, I think that acceptance is, a more useful way to approach those things. So I guess, is this the antithesis of imposter syndrome? Have you ever had that? (laughs) Once you started becoming successful, what was that for you? And what is it now for you? Of course, as a writer, you know, I'm going to take apart every piece of your sentence. And first of all, go back to once I started to become successful, which I know what you mean. And I think a lot of people would agree. This is when Wild was published and it became a big bestseller. Yeah. My second book. But what was interesting, was always been interesting to me, is that actually before Wild was published, when Torch, my first book was published, I felt like a successful writer. And I was a successful writer. I was not a successful writer by that sort of stratospheric kind of measurement that we very, like in our culture, we all know this, right? Success is fame and money. Yeah. And Torch brought me neither fame nor money. I always say before, you know, like with Torch, I had sort of an audience of about 50,000 people in America who read my essays and read my stories and read my novel. But isn't that kind of the best kind of And it's of lovely. And it's yeah. the kind of success, well, you well know this. It's the kind of success that most working artists have. And it's certainly the kind of success that most writers have. And I was grateful for it. Didn't pay the rent. No. (laughs) It didn't pay my student loan bill, you know. But it was, I had done, I had published a book. I had felt proud of that book. People came to me and said they loved that. Like, those were all really important things. And it was in that whole process of writing that first book and reckoning with so many of these demons that we have talked about, like mm-hmm. the fears and the, we'll never, I'll never get this, I'll never get that. You know, I'd come to this piece within myself that was about measuring success by answering yes to the question, did I do the work? And did I do it as well as I could? Did I give it everything? Yeah. And the answers when I wrote Torch were yes and yes. So the good fortune I had then is that I had really had that in me by the time Wild was published. And I was 43 and a grown-up, and I'd had a long career by then as a writer and a successful writer. And then suddenly I was on this kind of rocket ship where I sort of exceeded the bounds of— You were 43 when what happened? When Wild was published. And so I'm so grateful for that because what I, the way I experienced that rocket ship of success wasn't, yay, you know, look at me, I'm a good writer because 
this book is a bestseller or Oprah picked it or it's being made in film, whatever, any of those measurements. I got to say, yes, I knew I had been successful before I, you know, to me, the success was finishing wild, doing the work and doing it as well as I could. Yes, yes. That was success. And then when that other stuff happened, it really did feel like I almost want to laugh, a kind of giddy laugh right now because it felt like that. It felt like, oh my goodness, what is happening? And it's outside of me. Because that book that I wrote would be the exact same book if it were just sitting in a drawer in my desk right now and nobody had ever read it. And I think that's a really important thing for us to remember as artists is that the success is in the work and then the things that happen to that work you know, in the world are outside of us. And this is in no way diminishing the accomplishment. Like, I wrote every word of that book. That is my work. But then what is made of it in the world is outside of me. And it is not the stick by which I measure my worth or my value or my achievement. And I believe that with all my heart. Now, imposter syndrome. Yes. <laughs> Does it come and go? I have imposter syndrome all the time because what I do is, you know, I can be very clear about these works I've already written. I say, you know, yes, I gave it my all. I did the work. And yet where imposter syndrome comes in for me is always when I'm writing the next thing, which I'm doing right now. I'm writing my next book. I'm writing another memoir. And the feeling I have almost always is I have fooled them a few times now. <laughs> And I won't be able to feel full of them again. People will actually ask me, do you think that Wild will be the best book you ever write? I hope not. Now, it might be the best-selling book I ever write because it's going to be pretty dang hard to top that. But again, that outcome was not me. That outcome was what happened to it in the world. It's the same book in a small room as it is yeah. as a major motion picture. That's right. And so, yeah, imposter syndrome, here again, what I've tried to do with it is to say, Yep, this is part of the writing process for me, unfortunately, is to have a lot of doubt, a lot of a lot of sense that I can't do it, a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm ashamed I haven't written my next book yet. You know, it's been a f- several years now since my last book came out. I mean, I do have the new edition of Tiny Beautiful Things out, and I've done tons of other writing. I know, I'm rolling my eyes. We'll, we'll get it. We'll get me. into yeah, all but... of that. But what I mean is like, there's always like this little troll inside of me. Yeah. I call it my it's, my inner terrible someone mm-hmm. um, who's saying, you didn't do enough. You didn't do it well enough. You know, you can't do it. You fooled them. You can't fool them again, like all of that. But again, what I try to do is say, this is part of the writing process. This is part of the creative process. And so take a seat at the table. Ooh, bring it in, like you just said. That's right. And then onward we go. I really love that. It's almost like when those things creep in, reminding yourself that like, oh, here you are, and this is actually part of that. Absolutely. And... Just like with anything, with any level of success, it doesn't feel as good if you don't have all of that. Like, well, I don't think that right. like narcissists <laughs> or sociopaths feel like deep, warmth, <laughs> that's right. joy and gratitude when some, because I don't know. I mean, look at your struggles, right? But many of our listeners, again, most people know a lot about you, but you've struggled with drugs. You had the death of your mother at far too young of an age. You were abused by your father. Before age what? I mean, you had been through the ringer. At the end of the day, 
most people don't make it out of that. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, let's be honest. They just don't. And when we can, I mean, it's something to celebrate because it's so hard. It is. And I think that that's another reason it's so important that we as artists measure our success by those things that are about us, like I proposed. Because here's one way that I have never, ever, ever, ever felt like an imposter. And that is when it comes to the work. Because what I can tell you is I have worked really, really hard for decades. And I really have given it my all. And I have paid my dues. And I have always felt that I could stand really strongly in that. Since I was a very young woman, I was unapologetically ambitious about my work. If you'd asked me in my 20s what my intentions were, I would have told you they were to write the greatest American novel. And I would have told you with a straight face. Because, you know, nobody wants to write the second best book in the world. And of course, that doesn't mean that I even think that's possible. There is no one, like, best book. But my aspirations have always been and continue to be to do the very best. I feel like you kind of have to. Maybe Some people don't. I, again, I'm not going to use that word delusion anymore, actually, because I you broke that down for me. But like, I'm like, no, I want to not only do this, I want to be the very best in the world at this, or I want to do this and I want this to go. And people look at me like, but whether or not it happens, I need to be there yeah. in order to get to the next place. Yeah. I think that what we both, you're a bit younger than me, but like I'm 54. And certainly when I was growing up as a girl and a young woman, ambition was not a positive attribute to have if you were a woman or a girl. And yet I have always been wildly ambitious. And I, and I think that that one of the problems with it, I mean, there's you know, sexism and the patriarchy, which, you know, contribute to that. But but I also think that, like, the way I define ambition is not that my ambition is to be better than you, that, like, I'm better than other writers, or it's it's really, it's very, again, a very self-contained thing. It comes back to that. Did I do the work and did I do it the best I could? To be the and best so, version of yourself. The best version of yourself. And I think so often it has been framed in really competitive terms, that there is one, there is the chosen, and I reject that entirely. And I feel really driven by that, I guess, that thing I've had since I was a child, that like part of being a writer is finding that perfect way to say something, yeah, that perfect phrase, that perfect moment that makes somebody laugh or cry. And that is about a, a very, you know, you have to be very ambitious to achieve that kind of life on the written page. And so like the imposter syndrome, the shame, the doubt contributes as much as my own sense of like, I want to be the greatest I can be. And then to know when you've gotten to a place in your work, whether it's a sentence, whether it's a novel, whether it's a painting, whether it's a song, where you can say with certainty that that was one of the best versions of yourself. Yeah. It was certainly the best you could do in that moment in time. Well, right. And then I always say this, I'm always trying to level up. The only person I'm competing with is myself. I 
share your sentiment. And I truly don't feel competitive with right. other women. This is a cliche statement, but there really is enough for us all. For sure. Because possibilities are endless. It's hard to know when to keep pushing yourself and know when to chill yeah. on yourself, you know? And I'm First, yeah. constantly like, is this a moment I need to push myself and like move more into that resilience? Or is this a moment where I need to lie on the couch all day and not do anything? And that just goes, I mean, that that's a whole nother conversation about self-care, but there's that in there too, you know? That, oh yeah. And I don't know the answer either. I mean, yeah. yeah what is laziness? Because goodness knows I can be lazy. And what is needing to have that period where you're at rest and contemplation, because those things can absolutely contribute to your creative oh, yeah. work in a big way. And it's also true that you can just be like slacking. Sure. <laughs> I've like done you both. just said, you're writing a book for the first time in how many years? Well, I've been writing this book off and on for most of the last decade. But what's happened is so Wild and Tiny Beautiful Things came out in 2012, and they both exploded in these different ways. And I became very involved in various creative projects associated with them. I was really involved with the film. You of think? Wild, yeah. I you know? mean, it went nuts. Yeah. And I was part of, I mean, I was part of its making. I was on the set and my daughter played me in the movie and, you know, all of these, I had my hands in that. Yeah. And then Tiny Beautiful Things was adapted for the stage by Nia Vardalis and Thomas Kale directing it. Um, and I was, you know, part of that, like at the table, doing table reads and watching the rehearsals. That was so fun and exciting. And Nia did a beautiful job with the play. And then all that time, even before the play came about, I've been in behind the scenes trying to make this into a television show, which is now happening with Hulu. It'll be out soon. And so that, plus I've written a bunch of stories and essays, and I still write the Dear Sugar column. And I've I'm a writer on Tiny Beautiful Things, the TV show. I wrote a screenplay about Janis Joplin. Like I'm doing You're all a public these speaker. different forms. Yeah, I'm a public You're speaker. You're a mom of two I'm a, teenagers. I'm a teacher. Like, I do lots of yeah. So I've been this whole time doing other work, but it is time for me to return to that first love, writing books, and so that's what I'm doing now. I'm thrilled. We're thrilled. Thank you. I mean, that's for sure. Selfishly, I think. It's about time, Cheryl. Thank you. <laughs> no shame, right? No, no shame. shame. <laughs> no, in all honesty, I'm, I didn't know that. And yeah, I'm so excited. Thank you. So the importance of being, we kind of touched upon this, the importance of being humble, of getting kicked down and getting back up. You get kicked down in New York as an artist all the time, mm -hmm. you know, as a visual, I'm talking about visual artists. And I work with so many emerging artists and that level of resilience. And I think I talk about New York too much on this podcast and I'm going to stop because we are so decentralized right now, especially mm -hmm. after COVID and mm -hmm. the creative industries. And you certainly do not need to be in New York to reach any level of anything. But what I see, because that's my home, are these young artists that come to New York and these young actors and these young writers. And you just get kicked down over and over and over and over again. And then it's so beautiful to see the few, right? And it's almost like we hang on to those stories. We hang on to the Cheryl Strades or the Jenna Gribbons or all of these artists that all of a sudden after years and years and years yes. of paying their dues because you yeah. did. I mm -hmm. mean, you were 43 when Wild was published. That's right. 
no one paid for you to go to school. No. You were waitressing. You That's were doing right. drugs. You were sleeping around. That's you were right. like fucking. And I was doing all that and I was writing. And that's what I mean, is that I was doing all kinds of stuff that wasn't conducive. <laughs> I was going to say it was not. It was, I was, I was going to say conducive to writing, but I was but not even conducive to, to living, right? And yet that whole time, like the unbroken, I always think of the unbroken thread of my life is my writing. I thought what you were going to say is like, so what advice do you have for these people, these young artists who are being kicked it's in? It's a tough question. But I can't help myself because I'm Dear Sugar. Even if you I don't ask it. me, I'm going to give give you, I'm going to give you them Great. my advice. Make that creativity, make that art that you're making your unbroken thread. And what that meant to me in my life is no matter what, no matter what hard, bad, sad, icky, ugly, gnarly things were happening, I always knew at the core of me, the deepest core of me, there was my writing. And it would be the place that I would always return to. It would be the thing that I would sit down and write in my journal about what happened the night before. It would be that sometimes when I wasn't even actually writing during certain eras of my life, mm -hmm. that I knew that, that that story was inside of me. And I paid attention. And I took notice. And I wondered and I dreamed and I knew that all of this stuff that I was living through would someday become a story that I would tell that was beyond me, that was about the human experience. And I wasn't wrong about that. And so it's sort of about like holding on to your source, hold on to that deepest beauty and light that is within you, even in the darkest times, and trust it and honor it and act on it. And rejection is horrible and it hurts. And sometimes Sucks. it turns us away to a point where we say, like, I'm never. I mean, I've been through the writing workshop where nobody likes the story I wrote and I walk home crying oh, and yeah. thinking I'm never going to write again. Yeah. And then the deal is you have to feel that for a couple hours and then go back and write, you know, and maybe you find a different group to show your story to next time. Maybe you uh, don't join a group at all. You do have to do what it takes to protect your heart and your spirit, but you also have to let your heart and spirit grow strong. Here again, we're back on the acceptance thing. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most powerful things for any artist to accept is not everyone is going to like or love your art, oh, yeah. you know, and I'm all for it. There are tons of people out there who've read my books and I'm not their cup of tea. Okay. And I'm just like, I get it. You know, how many books have you read that somebody said, you have to read this book, it's an amazing book, and you read it and you're like, you know, I don't really like it. Right. And it doesn't mean the book is bad. It means you don't like it. And so when you can really, as an artist, take that into your heart, you realize, oh, yeah, you know, some people are going to hate it and some people are going to love it. And most people are going to not even know it exists. Well, and it <laughs> goes back to that, you know, with personal relationships work for it's it's not about me yeah you know like when you're dating someone and they reject you when you're in love and you're rejected yeah. when you get fired you know it's oftentimes sometimes i'm like well it kind of was about me but but to just be like it's not about you that's just where that person is but that's true that's absolutely true but what i was also thinking about and i think this is really important yeah for especially sort of young artists to hear is that, you know, it's sometimes when you get a hard critique mm -hmm. in a workshop as a writer or, or I guess any kind of art that gets workshop. Yeah. Sometimes it is about you. Like sometimes it's not good enough. You know, oh, yes. it's not good enough yet. And here's the thing. 
that's what art is. Like, that's how you make art is that you write a story or you write a poem or you make a painting. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's, this is you learning how to be great. And you don't start out great. That there are oodles of things that I've written that legitimately the people in the room have said, this mm. scene isn't working, or I don't find this character to be believable, or, you know, I think we're supposed to feel something we're not feeling. And then I have to say, okay, actually, even though what I really wanted you to say is, I love it and it's brilliant. Sure. Well, that's what your <laughs> ego really um, wanted in that moment. Actually, thank you. Like, thank you for paying such close attention to my work that you told me that it could and should be better. And so part of that, you know, part of it is like what we just said, all that stuff of saying it's not about me and choosing your audience, blah, blah, blah. And the other part is about listening and being humble and saying, I have work to do right. and then doing the work. And that's the thing. And then doing the work. And I love that so much. Sometimes it is about you. Yeah. And I've always felt that once I like even as I was saying and to remember, it's not about you. <laughs> I'm like, I've been broken up with in the past. And it, like friends have been like, it's not about I'm like, it actually 100 percent is about <laughs> me. I was a fucking bitch for two years. You <laughs> right. know, what am I going to do now yeah. to keep that love? That's so important to me in the future, you know, and that I just plugged that into relationships, mm -hmm. but same with like workshopping writing, workshopping art to be able to be like, okay, sometimes it's not about us, right? But like oftentimes it is. And then to be able to stand in that vulnerability and be like, okay, how do I do better? Right. And that's and, it. And that's, in that moment. It's such a great example of the relationship one, because it is one where you could say, listen, this relationship didn't work because I actually brought a lot of flaws yeah, to it. And, it and the next time, if yeah. I, if I want to succeed at a relationship, I need to do better. I need to work on these aspects of myself. So this is true in art too, where yeah. you're like, I'm trying to be funny on the page and nobody's laughing. How do I, <laughs> right. how do I write a sentence that makes people laugh? Yeah, yeah. And that's a journey. That's yeah. a beautiful apprenticeship. And I think that that is the magic and wonder and beauty of being an artist is we get to be an apprentice. I am still an apprentice. You know, I was a writer on the Tiny Beautiful Things TV show. And, you know, I'm in this Zoom room with eight other writers. And I entered it as the only person in the room. Yes, I had written the book upon which the show is based, but I had never written a TV show before. And I was an apprentice and I listened to them and I said, how do you do this? And of course, you know, me as a, a prose writer, like what I want to do is like, I want to describe the light in the room or what the way the glass of water looks like, on the Cheryl. table. No, this isn't TV. Right. <laughs> you don't do that on TV. You know, you have so to. So you went into that experience as an apprentice and Absolutely. knew you were going into that. Did anyone say to you, like, listen, yes, you wrote this book, but you're going to walk into this room right now and it's going to feel different. I mean, this was your first time doing that, right? That, absolutely. And, you know, no, they didn't. What what it was, and, and I knew that the, they would be this way before I joined, is, and later they all admitted, yes, they felt this way. They were kind of like, oh, dear, yeah. you know, the author is going to be with us. And I think they expected me to be a kind of Diva, like, well, this is my story. This is, how this the is my words. hit the wall. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, of course, that's not who I am no. at all. And I just very humbly said, I want to learn everything you all know about writing in this form. Now, of course, at core, all writers, whatever the form is, 
we know how to tell a story. Sure. We know the kind of mechanics of that and the and the craft of that. But each form has its own demands. And television, you don't get to, as a writer, describe the light in the room. No. What you have to describe is action and, uh, you know, the things people do and say. And that's what's in the script. And that was cool. You do, you know, that was a cool thing for me to learn how to, you know, I know how to make people laugh on the page in my books and to learn how to make people laugh in a script uh, for a TV show was a new thing or cry or fill in the blank. Whatever. And I love that, you know, so it was both a combination of drawing on skills I've long had as a writer and then learning new ones. And there's nothing more exciting to me than that. Than learning new things. Yeah. I know. Me neither. But, you know, I've also taught young writers. Mm -hmm. I have a couple of experiences where you know, at that very beginning stage, they wanted to close themselves off from that because they were hurt that the workshop didn't love what they'd written. And it's like, if you are not going to be able to say like, okay, this isn't maybe as good as it could have been. And I want to listen and learn mm -hmm. how to do it better. You aren't going to probably get very far. You know, you do have to, to learn how to stay humble and always be listening to how you could do it better. And, you know, sometimes it's like, maybe that's just not your thing. That's you know? right. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's like, do we push ourselves to be about, <laughs> I remember like poetry is a huge part of my life. I did my master's thesis on art and poetry therapy. Uh -huh. I remember at a very young age, just trying to write a fucking poem. <laughs> you, I'm sure you can agree. Writing a poem is probably one of the hardest things to do in the world, writing a good poem. And I really, and I'm like, fine saying this to this day, I'll try. And I'm like, I will never be a famous poet. I'm not good <laughs> enough, but the passion is there, right? right? And so for me, picking up and same with, I'll probably never write a novel, you know, right. but like picking up a poetry book or picking up wild for me that's enough mm -hmm. to be able to sit on my couch and have that. And mm -hmm. that does become part of me. And then in terms of my career, figuring out, okay, what can I do to incorporate these things, have them kind of like bleed into me and create art in my own way, yeah. which is what I'm doing right now, right? Yeah. Like, I can't fucking write wild, <laughs> but I'm sitting here with Cheryl Strayed on my podcast talking about right. it, right? So it's again, that back to like, no, sometimes it is about you. And like Emily McElreath, I can't write a poem. I can write a poem. It's going to be like a mediocre poem. I don't believe it, Emily, though. Like, I think your mediocre poems might be better than you think. Well... Thank you. That feels very maternal and warm and everything I need to hear sometimes because I'm very hard on myself. But it's the New York in me. It's me, you know, being able to be like, this isn't good enough. Yeah. Whether that comes from a place of loving yourself or abusing yourself or a little bit of both mm -hmm. or going between the two, it's still kind of propelling you. Yeah to the next place. For sure. As someone extremely passionate about mental health, seeing a therapist is essential to my quality of life. We'd like to take this moment to announce how thrilled we are to partner with the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp. If you think you might be feeling anxious, depressed, or even just overwhelmed, being alone with your thoughts can be an isolating feeling. 
BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's that easy. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just for the Art Career podcast listeners, we will offer 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash TAC. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P dot com slash TAC. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the Art Career Podcast. So Tiny Beautiful Things, do you want to talk any more about it's coming out in 2023? It's coming out in 2023, I think in the the first half of the year. And I've seen all eight episodes now, and it's really fun. It's starring Katherine Hahn as a woman who writes an advice column called Dear Sugar. Who and it's both, is... I know. She's great. She's so perfect. And, you know, that's why we really wanted her and loved her because we wanted somebody who could be absolutely so funny like she is. funny. But also be able to pull out the really emotional, dramatic moments. It's, it's, It's really, it's funny. It's also deeply serious. Like, it's a show that will make you cry and it will also make you laugh. And who better to do that than Catherine Hahn? But Liz Tigelar is the showrunner and creator and she just became like a sister to me in the making of this show. She's an amazing human. And I learned so much from her about television writing. You know, she was the one who helmed our room. And just she and I really talked deeply about what kind of story we wanted to tell in this show, which is, of course, different than the book. You know, it's adapted from the book and those letters are in the show. But we really wanted to create these kind of fictional characters who who are living their lives. And it was just a cool experience. And I feel amazed, you know, when you when you asked me about imposter syndrome. Yeah. It's not the word for this feeling I have, but it's I what what is the word for this feeling I have that is how did this book that began for me as you know, writing an anonymous advice column called Dear Sugar, I was paid nothing to write that column, okay? Nobody knew I was writing it. I was paid nothing for it. And it grew a cult following. And it was a great teacher to me because I really just did it for the fun of it. And it became some of the most important work I've done as a writer. And I'm astounded and amazed that it has traveled so far in the world beyond me, that it has become a thing that is a book, you know, people read. And of course, like I said, books have their own lives once the writer has finished writing them. But the play and then the TV show. And that is not imposter syndrome. It's astonishment syndrome. Yeah, astonishment. <laughs> what a great word for you know, it. You know, it's like what what has happened and how and why, which feels I mean, I think it's one of the most beautiful feelings I've ever had. I think art is hard to make because when we make it, we're we're making something out of nothing. Yeah. You know, where there was not a painting, there is now a painting. Where there was not a song or a dance or a book, there is now one. And we did that heavy, hard labor of creating it. We brought it into the world. And then what happens to it in the world is beyond us. Can't do anything. But when something really glorious and beautiful does happen to it, I think we get to just say, wow, you know, that was 
astonishing. So that, yeah, I guess I have astonishment syndrome about the show. And I mean, if anything in life, life is short and whatever your beliefs are about what happens to us after we go, it's like, if you can't sit there in those moments with astonishment, you're fucked. That's right. And it's like we were saying, it's part of the, you know, if we have to accept the turmoil (laughs) and the doubt and all that stuff, I also think we have to accept that beauty yeah. and, you know, that we get to celebrate for real the good things that happen. When I was talking just a minute ago, you got tears in your eyes. Why? Cheryl, I can't believe you're doing this to me. Um, so I was going to end with this um, and we're probably going to end after this because you just made me fucking cry. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so season two of this podcast launched and I'm like, oh, you know what? Like, why don't I reach out to Cheryl Strange? She's never going to get back to me. But again, this is what I do. I'm like, oh, like, why don't I try this? The worst that's going to happen is someone's going to be like, fuck off. And plenty of people have told me to fuck off in my (laughs) life. And so I open this and it's this warm, loving, yes, I'll be on your podcast. Mm. And three seconds later, one of my dearest friends, L.A., who was staying with me at my house, walked in the front door. So I ran up to L.A. and I was like, you don't understand. Cheryl Strange just wrote me back. And she's like, Emily, you're really, really excited about this. And the reason being, truly, and I'm going to stay strong right now, you have carried me through. Oh, honey. I mean, Cheryl, like... Everything, you know, everything. You have been such a role model for me. And so I'm doing this art podcast, and the art world is so fucking shallow. And like, so much of it is, you know, so cutthroat. And to have someone like you on this podcast and to have this like real, raw, beautiful conversation about life and love and so so LA is making fun of me. I draft <laughs> this long email, which I'll, now that we've met, uh-huh. I can now send to you. But I'm like, LA, okay, here's the email I'm going to send. <laughs> and LA's like, don't and send she it. She looks at it and she's like, Emily, don't fucking send it. <laughs> and I look at it and I'm like, I really can't send this. She's like, you sound so creepy. You don't know this woman. You can't send this. This is my point, And this is what I'll end with. I think one of the bummers about being an adult growing up is not getting as excited about things mm-hmm. as we used to, mm. right? Whatever that means to the listeners, I've felt that for myself. You know, it's like every year that passes, I'm like, oh, I don't Christmas isn't that magical this year. You know, (laughs) we get less excited about things. And to be able to get this excited about Mm. a person, talking to a person, having them included in a project you're doing is, I mean, I guess I have put myself in the way of beauty, as your mother said, by having you be such a wonderful role model in my life and to stand in that gratitude in this moment for being as excited Mm. as I am 
and deeply grateful. Thank you, Cheryl. Emily, you could have sent that email. I just want to tell you that I have heard every word you said, and I'm so grateful for it. And I do think that this is the power we have as artists. Yeah. I, I think it's the magic, beautiful thing that will, this is why art will never die and books will never die. And we're, we're always talking about the demise of the novel or no, fill in the bullshit. blank. And we need this kind of connection that you and I have made. Yep. And of course, it's been amazing and lovely to sit here at this table and talk to you. But what was beautiful is that we were connected before. We were connected yeah. through words I wrote yeah. the same way you have connected with so many others in the work that you, you were make with in the me world. in my college dorm. That's I mean, right. Think of I that. know. Isn't that nuts? And I think that that's what's so, I mean, that's what's so powerful and moving and astonishing to me. And so thank you. What a beautiful thing it is that our paths have crossed in this way. Thank you, Cheryl. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh my goodness. Happy Thanksgiving. What? So I know, listen, the gratitude thing you said. Yeah. You know, that kind of, it's sort of a bullshit idea of like, at your lowest moment, remember what you're grateful for. And you're just like, no way. That's impossible right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And yet, and yet, what I know you also know, that it is true that it does help us when we have gratitude for things. That when in the hard times when we can remember to do things like put ourselves in the way of beauty, those are the things that save us. And so I think that like for me, the the complexity of so many of those kinds of ideas is again, that they're both true and false at the same time. And they're like contradictory, you know, on one hand, it's bullshit. On the other hand, it's the thing that will save you. And I think being able to say that it's both at the same time is maybe the closest we can get to living like the truest life we can live. So with all of that said, what are you grateful for this year? Well, you, for sure, number one this year. I can't believe we're doing this the day before Thanksgiving. I am grateful for my wonderful partner, Kevin, who I don't know. I never thought I was going to ever thought I was going to be with another man again, mm -hmm. ever. Um, I was because you were with a woman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. For a while before, for like a decade before uh, several women. And he just swept me off my feet. And I, I'm very, very grateful for the grounding feeling I have within that relationship. Um, as people get so bummed out when November hits that suffer from seasonal affective disorder which I understand, but it brings me to saying this. I am so grateful for our four seasons, you mm. know, and as difficult as they are sometimes, I think that that is something that I never lose excitement over that. And I am always so grateful for the changing of the seasons. I mean, it sounds so big and expansive, but it's been just such a pivotal and huge part of my life, mm -hmm. you know, um, and living in a place that I can experience that. Uh, so I'll just stop with those and my cat, Benny. Oh, the cats. They're the best. They're the best. And the possibility of becoming a mom one day. Mm. You know? Yes. I, I hope you get that. Thank if you, you want that, I hope you get that. I'm going to get it. You can get it. That's the thing. You can get it. 
Yeah. Just go get it, Emily. I will. Like a motherfucker. What are you grateful for? <laughs> so many things. I have two teenagers, my son Carver, who's 18, and my daughter Bobby, who's 17, my husband Brian. And the last few years of our family's life have been hard. The pandemic was hard for my teenagers. There have been struggles. And I've had to, I've had to go through a time in my life that maybe I thought was behind me. Mm-hmm. Like I had to go through, in my 20s, I went through a really hard time after my mom died. Yep. And I was sad a lot and I cried a lot and I struggled a lot and I didn't know which direction to go mm-hmm. at times. And in these past few years, in my 50s, I have found myself in that situation again in a totally different way, watching my kids struggle and trying to figure out how to be happy sometimes when they're not, how to just love them through their own struggles, all of those things. And it's turned me upside down. And there have been so many times in the last few years where I've cried and thought, like, why does it have to be this way? Or I want it to be different. And I've also tried to remember in the midst of that, like it's really very often during these times that something really beautiful is born, that a seed that's planted in a dark time will blossom into something beautiful some years down the road when I, as a writer and a human, can make sense of those experiences and tell stories about them. But it's so hard, and I'm not a mother yet. You know, it's one thing with, like, we talk about codependency all the time. Like, no matter what this person is feeling, you have to stay on your side of the street. and be. Ha- <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't. And that's close to impossible to be a mom. Yeah. And to be, but yet, right? You that's still, absolutely. Yet you have to, to some totally. extent. And, and I should say, you know, my kids are doing great, you know, but. They're teenagers. It's like it's the awful. teen years are struggling. But no, it is. It, that has been, that's what I mean. It's like, yeah. They, and that's the beautiful thing about life. It's like, you know, you don't know what stories you're going to get to tell. Right. Many times I've wondered because, you know, my mom died when she was 45 and I was 22. Yeah. And that story of mother loss became such a huge one. That story of grief Mm -hmm. became such a huge one in my career that I've very often wondered, what stories would I have told if my mother hadn't died? And I cannot answer that question. And of course, that question cannot be answered because we end up telling the stories we live through. Sure. And so... And it just is. It is. And so like one of my stories will be you know, 10 years from now, I can look back on parenting teenagers during a pandemic. And I know that beautiful art, not just from me, but like all of us is going to be made of this time. And I hate, it's almost like you feel guilty about saying it's like you needed to like take one for the team. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) To be able to then write the fucking book. That's right. And help all of us. So (laughs) thank you for taking one for the team, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's been such a pleasure, Emily. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Art Career. If you get value from this podcast, please consider helping me make more of these episodes by becoming an Art Career Premium member at theartcareer.supercast.com. That's theartcareer.supercast.com. S-U-P-E-R-C-A-S-T dot com. And please don't forget to rate and review. Every rating counts. Thanks so much.